jumping ahead this morning to Luke's account of the Lord's Supper. Um, And we're going to reflect upon verses 7 through 23 and then verses 31 through 34. Uh, Before I read, let's pray. Father, thank you for your living and active word. And we pray now for the powerful, sovereign ministry of the Holy Spirit to take your word and apply it to our hearts and minds and lives. Help us to see Jesus Christ and the fullness of his grace offered to us in the gospel. And give us hearts to receive, minds to understand, ears to hear, and wills to obey. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Luke 22, picking it up in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man! By whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Jumping down to verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Here's uh, an outline for you to follow along this morning as we think about this passage. I want us to reflect upon two things. First of all, three things that this passage teaches us about Christ. Secondly, three ways that the Lord's Supper may be a means of grace for us. So first of all, let's think about three things this text teaches us about Christ. And number one, it teaches us that Jesus is the host of this meal. Now this passage begins with some strange instruction from Jesus 
sending Peter and John ahead into the city to prepare the Passover meal for them. And he says to them, when you get into the city, you're going to look for somebody who's carrying a, a jar of water, and he's going to lead you into the house, this house. And, and you, you wonder as you're reading, how does, how does Jesus know these things? Perhaps it's something that had been revealed to him, or more likely, perhaps, these are arrangements that he had made previously. But either way, he says, follow this man to the house and uh, inquire of the master where the room is that we will meet and he will direct you and we'll, uh, we'll have the Passover meal there. And so Jesus makes arrangements for a traditional Passover meal, which would have had the cups and the unleavened bread and the, and the bitter herbs. But I think a question worth asking is why, why does Luke bother to give you these details about preparations for the meal when what he wants to get to I think is speaking to us about the institution of the Lord's Supper right if that's if that's really what Luke is concerned to to tell us about the the Lord Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper why why all of these details about um, uh, arranging things for this Passover meal and I I think one of the things that the gospel of Luke and other gospels are trying to communicate to us is that Jesus is the host of this meal. He is not the victim of circumstances outside of his control. He has, as he says, been looking forward to having this meal, sharing this meal with his disciples. He is the one arranging for the room. He is the one preparing the table. He will run the Passover meal. He will be the the head of this family gathering. And so when we come to the table... We ought to come thinking of Jesus inviting us as a host for a meal. There is a a reason that Protestant Christians have always understood that you come to a table and it's not not an altar. It's not a place where a a sacrifice is, is being made. It's not a mere piece of decoration in the church building. It's a table for a meal, and Jesus is the host. And so without being too picky about these things, churches ought to think about the Lord's table looking like a table. Think about uh, about Psalm 23. Uh, It's a description of the Lord as our shepherd, a psalm that we're very familiar with. But remember the second half of the psalm. It's the Lord as our shepherd host. Not only does his, his rod and his staff comfort us, but he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies and anoints our head with oil and our cup overflows. What's the picture there? It's a picture of the Lord as our shepherd and our host saying, I am preparing for you a great banquet. And so this is part of what we're doing when, when we come to worship the Lord and we worship him in word and sacrament. We are, we are coming around the throne of, of, of grace because Christ is worthy, but Christ prepares a table for us Well, because we're not. It's a service for God and it's a service for us to receive grace. So we shouldn't, I don't think we should get into these unhelpful discussions about you know, uh, corporate worship, and you hear some people saying, well, 
worship is really all about what we want, and you hear people reacting to that in a knee-jerk way. No, 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 no. Worship is all about what God wants. That's a, that's a false dichotomy. It's actually about both. It's about God's honor and our good, receiving grace from our covenant Lord. So Jesus prepares a table and invites us to come. He's the host, and he wants his people to come. That's the first thing. Number two, this text teaches us that Jesus is not only the host, he's the feast. Uh, In verse 19, he takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, gives it to his disciples and says, this is my body given for you. Now, not not in the sense of transubstantiation, the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that depends upon those Aristotelian categories of substance and accidents, while the outward accidents of the bread and the cup remain the same inwardly, mysteriously, the substance of the things are transformed into the real physical body and blood of Christ. Frankly, that would have been complete gobbledygook to the disciples. (laughs) Just think about it for a second. Jesus, Jesus is standing right there, right in front of his disciples, and he's holding the bread, and he breaks the bread, and he says to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Does, it, does anyone think, it's kind of like, you know, you take a photo of yourself and you say to somebody, this is me. Does anybody think that in that photo is, you know, contained your physical substance? Of course not. They understand it's a, it's a representation. But we also need to understand it's, it's more than a mere representation, Listen to this. You know, the normal Passover liturgy, I think, hinted at this. The traditional Passover liturgy during the the, the meal, the head of the home would say, this is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came out of the land of Egypt. So this this was the liturgy. This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came out of the land of Egypt. You know, no nobody would have nobody would have thought. You, you, you got the bread from 1,500 years ago? <laughs> how'd you manage that? How'd you get, how'd you get your, your hands on that bread? Of course, they didn't think that. They understood, though, that the, me, the meal was more than a mere symbol. They realized when we partake of this, we are joining ourselves to this same story. We, we belong. We identify with this group. We participate in the Exodus Story. We're part of God's redemption. Just as God saved our ancestors, so he will save us. And so the language here of bread and wine, of body and blood, was Jesus' way of saying, unless you feast on me by faith, you have no share in God's story of redemption. In the traditional Passover meal, The head of the family, again, was the one who would give interpretation of the significance of the meal along the way. And so it's fitting here that Jesus, as the head of this family gathering, gives this new interpretation. This is my body. This is my blood. Have you ever ever wondered when you read through the gospel accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper, why there's no mention of the Passover lamb. Ever thought about that? 
It, it's, you know, during, during the course of the Passover meal that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, but there's no mention of the lamb. Why is that? I think it's because, I think it's Luke's way of telling you that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. That the reality has come and he is the meal. His blood is the covering for our sins. And so Jesus takes the central event in Israel's history, celebrated as the most holy of days, and he makes it all about him. And when we gather around the table, we are gathering as participants of the story of Jesus' death and and resurrection. We are identifying him as our true Passover lamb. He prepares the table. He sets out the feast. He is the host and he is the meal. Here's the third thing I want us to see about Jesus in this text. That he is the covenant keeper in the midst of covenant betrayal. Uh, In verses 21 and 22, you have a prediction of ultimate betrayal. One of the 12 who's at the table with Jesus will betray him. Jesus is predicting Judas's ultimate betrayal. But then in verses 31 through 34, you have a prediction of temporary betrayal. In some way, all of the disciples will be guilty of this. You know, later on, they'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane and they can't even stay awake. Uh, to to pray, pray for Jesus in the hour of his temptation. And when the soldiers come, they all scatter. Since they all fail Jesus, they all betray him. But the focus here is upon Peter, who has said to Jesus, Lord, I'll go through anything with you, even if it means death. But later on, of course, we see that he would rather curse the Lord Jesus to a servant girl rather than take a stand for him. And so they all desert him. And so what we see in this passage is ultimate covenant betrayal predicted in Judas, temporary betrayal with Peter and the others. And it's within this context that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So we have Jesus as the covenant-keeping Messiah in the midst of covenant betrayal. He says... This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You know, blood was a sign and seal of the covenant. Listen to Exodus 24. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Zechariah 9, 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. The blood of the covenant, it was the signing on the dotted line. It was the wedding ring. It was the handshake. It was the public uh, documentation. That was the blood of the covenant. Now Jesus says, in the new covenant, it's not going to be the blood of an animal, but my blood that will ratify the covenant. It's going to be my blood that will seal to you all of the covenant blessings that will assure to you the reality of all of the promises of the covenant of grace, that God will be your God and that you will be his people. Or in terms of how Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 31, that he will forgive our iniquities and remember our sins no more. See, Jesus says his blood ratifies all of these blessings so that as I offer to you this cup of salvation, 
You can, you can drink it because, because I am going to drink from another cup. The cup of God's judgment. And isn't it interesting that not long after this, we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and we hear him, we hear him praying these Lord, uh, words to his, to his heavenly Father. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, your will be done. And so Jesus has just said to his disciples, here's a, here's a cup of blessing that I offer to you. But then here's another cup, and it's a cup of God's judgment. So Jesus is saying, I give to you the, the cup of the new covenant, the blood of the covenant, blessings for the people of God. And that's made possible because Jesus is going to drink, first of all, from another cup, because he is going to be the covenant-keeping Messiah in the midst of covenant betrayal. So Christ serves us as host. He gives himself as feast. He lays down his life as a ransom for many in the midst of covenant betrayal. And that is what's happening at this meal. Now let's go to the second thing I want us to think about briefly this morning. And that's three ways that the Lord's Supper can be a means of grace to us. In our growth in grace. In our Christian lives. In our becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification. Three ways the Lord's Supper may be a means of grace to us. And here are three words to summarize these three ways. Remembrance, communion, and hope. Let's think about remembrance first. You, you might think, well, this is, the, this is the obvious one. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And, and some take that to mean, okay, this is what we do. Uh, I, need to rem- I need to recall and remember and reflect upon what Jesus did a long time ago. And, and I'm doing my best, thinking my hardest to remember what he did for me. Well, there's, there's some truth to that, but there's much more to it. See, the bread and, and the cup are not just here to remind us of things that happened in the distant past. They are, they are here to remind you that God's promise is really true. Because as surely as you taste the bread and drink the cup, so surely has Christ given himself for you. That's what we're to remember. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. One of the questions asks, how does the Lord's Supper remind you? Notice that it's the Lord's Supper that Jesus gives us that reminds you. How does the Lord's Supper remind you And assure you that you share in Christ's once for all sacrifice on the cross and in all of his gifts. And here's part of the answer. Listen. In this way, Christ commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup. With this command, he gave this promise. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me. So surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Did you hear that language? As surely as you eat the bread and drink the cup, so surely has Christ's body been broken and his blood shed for you. Dear friend, do do you ever come to worship weighed down by your sin? 
I sure do. Do you, do you ever come into worship thinking, how, 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 I, I can't believe I said that to my spouse or my children. Why did I say that? Or do you ever think, why did I entertain those thoughts? How could I ever think something like that? Do you ever, do you ever think, you know, I, I, I can't believe how my emotions are just so out of control. Why can't I just get a grip? I can't believe that all I was doing during the service this morning was thinking about lunch plans and football and the rest of my schedule for the week. And even during the time of confession, my mind was wondering and I know I wasn't feeling the way I ought to about my sin. I can't even repent the right way. Do you ever wonder, dear friend, if God could really be for you when you and I are so full of sin? And if you, if you ever wonder that, dear friends, I want, to, I want to remind you that you need this table. It's one of the reasons that our Lord Jesus has given us this table to remind us that as surely as we eat this bread and drink this cup in faith, self-abandoning faith, so surely has Christ willingly laid down his life and shed his blood to redeem us from our sins. And this is therefore to remind us of the reality of Christ's sacrifice, that his suffering and his death sealed our everlasting redemption. Do this in remembrance of me to remember how real it was and how real it is. So that's the first way that the Lord's Supper may be a means of grace. Here's the second way, communion. Now this one may take a little bit more work on, on our part to, to appreciate. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul, Paul is arguing why the Corinthians need to take their idolatry more seriously. That their participation in these idolatrous feasts or eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols means that they are participating in demonic activity. That's the, that's the conclusion that Paul wants to reach. Uh, don't participate in these feasts because when you do, you're participating with demons. That's the conclusion he's after. And in order to get the Corinthians to that conclusion, he, 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 he lays before that conclusion a minor premise that he assumes they'll all agree with. It's a good way to make an argument. Okay, I want to get people to agree with this conclusion. First, I'm going to lay out some minor premises that we can all affirm. And that's what Paul is doing here. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, he, he lays out this premise that he believes you know, is a given that everybody will agree with in Corinth. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And is not the cup that we drink a participation in the blood of Christ. A participation. When you, when you eat this bread, you participate in the body of Christ. When you drink this cup, you participate in the blood of Christ. Now, the word behind this is one that we, we may know. It's the Greek word koinonia, the word for fellowship or communion. So there's something more going on at the table than just a mental remembrance of something that happened 2,000 years ago. Paul says, is it not the case when you take this bread and drink this cup that you are participating, that you have fellowship, 
that you are communing with the risen Christ. Dear friends, this is why we believe in a real presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. Not a real physical presence, but the reality of Christ's presence by the mysterious but real ministry of the Holy Spirit who lifts us up to commune with Christ in the heavenly places when we come in faith. And so we ought to be able to say, we ought to be able to say this about every worship service, but we ought to be able to say it today that with Jacob, surely, surely God has been in this place. And it's not because we've done something special or new to make Christ show up. It's not a matter of the right strategies or worship styles. You know, today so many churches reveal that they actually have a theology of the real absence of Christ. And they think, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to try to do these things in order to get Christ to, sh- to show up. Let's pray a little bit harder. Let's, let's sing that line a few more times. Let's dim the lights. Let's set the mood. Let's... Let's do whatever we have to do because Christ isn't here yet. So let's try to get him to show up. You see, friends, the presence of Jesus with his people is not controlled by gimmicks. Here's, Here's the reality. Here's the promise of scripture. Wherever the word is preached or the word is displayed according to scripture, there Christ is present with his people. Because he gathers us, he gathers us around the preaching of his word and his word made visible in order that we may enjoy communion with him. Now, of course, there's mystery here. I, I always struggle to find words to try to describe what we, we know is true on the basis of scripture. But when we, when we take the elements, we ought to be thinking more than Christ did something for me a long time ago. We we ought to be thinking, Christ is meeting me here and now. As, As I come in faith, the Lord Jesus is meeting with us to feed and nourish our faith and to strengthen us in our Christian walks as I trust and rely upon him. I have the blessings of the covenant because by faith I feed on him. So we confess that Jesus is not an absent host. He's he's here at the table inviting us to come. So it's a means of grace by remembrance, by communion, and then thirdly of hope, of through hope. You know, um, there's a there's a note of hope when it comes to the Lord's Supper that we may miss. It's, it's here in the Gospel of, of Luke when Jesus says he is not going to drink any wine until the kingdom of God is ushered into its, 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 its fullness. We see it in uh, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. What's Paul, what's Paul saying there? When we celebrate communion, we are announcing something to the world and we are declaring something to one another. We're saying the Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sins. 
We are communicating the gospel to one another as we receive the elements together as the body of Christ. And we are saying he didn't, he didn't stay in the grave. He is risen and he is coming again. And as his covenant people, we are eagerly waiting for his return. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You see, there's an inherent element of hope when we come to communion. So you take the, you take the bread and the cup and <coughs> you are saying, this, isn't, this, isn't, this is not the final meal, dear, dear brothers and sisters. This is only a, a foretaste. This little piece of bread and this little cup are just little signs and symbols of a greater reality and a, a great celebration that Christ has in store for his people. I wonder what you guys would, would say to this question. Some of us in church have been discussing this question. What, what, what's your attitude? What's your, your mood when you're approaching the Lord's table? I have a little bit more than a suspicion that for some in evangelical churches, we have, for one reason or another, been trained to think that when we, when we come to the Lord's table, what we need to do is just work ourselves up into feeling really, really bad about our sins and to think about how much Christ has, has suffered for us. And only then do we become worthy of coming, coming to the table. The suspicion that that's how some people think about communion. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be an element of sorrow for our sin as we come believing and repenting of our sins to meet with Jesus at the Lord's table. That's not to say that there shouldn't be a, a biblical sense of, of reverence as we come and meet with the risen Lord at the table. But do you come with hope? Do you come with joy? Do, do you come with, with a sense that Jesus at this table is communicating to us that he's coming again and he's coming to make all things new and on that great day we will feast with Christ and there will be such an end to suffering and sin and death as, as we look forward to Christ's re return. I know, I know we all look forward to an end of suffering. But I wonder, do, do you look forward to the end of your sin? I know I, know, I, know I do. I, I, I get so sick of my sin. I get tired of the sting of death. But you see, I hope with me you have hope that when you come to the table, you're being reminded Jesus is coming again. And what a day of celebration it will be when, when suffering and sin and death are no more. When I was in high school uh, living with my, my family, we had a lot of birds, too many birds. It was kind of weird. We had uh, chickens, ducks, turkeys. I don't even know why we had the turkeys, but we had three different kinds of turkeys. And uh, we were all about just letting them roam in the yard. And uh, Well, we also had a bird dog, which is not a good combination. And some of you might know this story. One day, family was out, uh, uh, but one member of the family stayed home who will remain unnamed to protect uh, their reputation. 
but they, uh, they let the dog out on a line, but they left him out for too long, and he chewed his way through the line. And I remember coming home that day, and parents' house is on a hillside, and come down the driveway, you can, you can see the whole backyard. And it was, it was nothing short of a bird massacre. Um, I mean, you look on the backyard, and it was just covered in feathers. And there's the Weimaraner standing there in the middle of the yard having a, a good time. I was furious. I mean, I, I was fuming mad. I got out of the car, and I'm standing, looking down over the hillside. And it was one of those times where I was just so mad, I, I couldn't talk. And, and the only thing I could get out of my mouth was, stupid dog! <laughs> and eventually, I went down in the yard, and I got a hold of him, and I, I took him off, and I tied him to a tree, because I didn't even want to look at him. I just put him out of sight while I went and tried to clean up the mess. I was thinking about that story this week, and I thought, you know, that should be our attitude towards sin. This stupid sin. I hate what it does to my fellowship with God. I hate what it does to my church. I hate what it does to my family and friends. I hate what it does to our world, and I just want to see it put away. And my friends, the good news of the gospel is that through our Lord Jesus Christ, one day that's precisely what's going to happen. Suffering and sin and death will be put away once and for all. So we should praise God for this means of grace that he has given to us in the Lord's Supper. Because, dear friends, the Lord knows the weakness of our faith. That's why he has given us gospel signs that we can we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and taste with our mouths. You know, there's a lot of talk today about how we live in a visual culture, a visual world. And there's talk in the church about how we need to be more visually oriented. And if we're really going to help people understand the gospel, we're going to have to give them visual signs and so forth. And they're absolutely right in one sense. But all I want to say is, what if, what if we gave people the visual aid that Jesus himself has instituted for his people? Here is the gospel drama that Jesus wants you to see. Here's the gospel drama that he wants you to participate in as you come in faith. This table, this meal, it's a visual demonstration of the gospel as we come to the table alongside of brothers and sisters where Christ is the host and Christ is the feast. So let's come today remembering that as surely as we eat this bread and drink this cup, so surely has Christ's body been broken and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's, let's come today to commune with Christ by faith and, and let's come with hope, with joyful expectation that this little meal is a foretaste of greater things yet to come. Well, let me pray for us before we do. Father in heaven, we thank you for condescending to us in the weakness of our faith. Thank you for gospel signs and seals that point us to Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he has done for us in the gospel. We pray that today you would help us to come in faith 
to remember with assurance what Jesus Christ has done for his people. Help us to come today and to know the privilege of communion with your Son and through the Son with the Father in the Spirit. And help us to come today with renewed hope, not a false assurance, but deep, real, substantial gospel hope. And we pray that you would bless us as we do so and get glory for yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.